album, Women in Music Part 3, plus funny friend-testants Greta Teitelman, Benito Skinner, Aaron Foley, and Arden Marine play some nerdy games. So join me on NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. Sunday morning at 11 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today is Victoria Wilson, Senior Editor and Vice President of Alfred Knopf Publishing and author of A Life of Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True, 1907-1940. through Victoria Wilson was born in New York City to Mitchell, a physicist, and Helen Weinberg, a patient's rights advocate. She grew up on Martha's Vineyard. Her parents divorced and her father remarried. The acting coach, Stella Adler, was her stepmother. Vicki has been a busy woman. Besides her various roles at Knopf, she also served as vice president of the National Board of Review of Motion Pictures. She taught writing at Columbia, and was appointed by Bill Clinton to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. There's a lot more to say about this accomplished woman, but for our purposes, I'll be focusing on her life here in the Catskills for the last 30 years, and her incredible book about Barbara Stanwyck, who was thought by many to be one of Hollywood's greatest actresses. Vicki, welcome to Catskill Character. I'm so glad you could come in today. I'm thrilled to be here. Jeff Radio has been uh, one of the great gifts of this area. I love listening to it, and I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you feel that way. You've been coming up here for 30 years. How did you find your way up here? Well, I found my way up here through a very close friend of mine who was the pioneer, who was the maverick and the pathfinder, Martha Kaplan, who worked with me at Alfred A. Knopf, or as I call it, Alfred A. Gesundheit. And uh, she found a house here and a fixer-upper that she got for $20,000, and only Martha would have attempted to do this. And she cleaned it out over a very long period of time. And we used to come up on weekends, and I was completely taken. I'd never been to the Catskills because as a child, uh, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. But when I came to the Catskills and I would go to Martha's house, it always reminded me of the sort of center of the island of Martha's Vineyard. So I felt very at home here. And then over a period of time as Martha fixed up her house, I remember she used to have those long strips to catch flies hanging from her ceiling. And the house was sort of being redone bit by bit. But outside it was bliss. It was absolutely perfect. And at a certain moment, it was it was a sort of defining moment when I said, oh my God, I could actually have my own house, just like Martha. 
And it was amazing because I actually had been living in summers out in Sag Harbor, and I was about to buy a house that had about three blades of grass and was hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I was going to put myself in great debt. And I decided to look up here, and then uh, the real estate agent found this house and said, I want to show you something. And I said, oh, all right, I'll, I'll come up. And I came up. We went down this dirt road, which I thought was heaven to live on a dirt road because that's where we lived on the vineyard. So we're coming down this dirt road, and I look up on the hill, and there's this beautiful white, perfect white kind of vineyard-looking house, a farmhouse. And I said, oh, that's exactly the kind of house I would love to live in, but I'm sure it's not going to be for sale. We have two dogs in the studio with us today, Walter and Blossom, and they are adorable. And they may be making a little noise, but we don't care. And then the magical moment happened. We turned into the driveway. And the, it was the house, and it oh. was for sale. I think it had just come on the market. It had a beautiful barn and a studio that was unfinished that had been a garage. And there was this white, perfect, one-gable house. It was small, but it was perfect for me. And I made an offer and bought the house, and my life changed, and I've been living happily ever after up here. You know, you have mentioned twice now that it, there were things about Catskills that reminded you of the vineyard. Could you just tell me a little bit more about the particulars of that? Well, it's the lushness, the hills, the particular quality of the hills. And a lot of times when I'm here, if I'm, there's a road that leads to a dirt road that I take. And if you look out over those set of hills, it actually looks like the ocean mm. from a particular point on the vineyard, mm. the highest point. It, just the center of the island has that quality. It's like French countryside or Irish countryside, mm. and that's what it's like up here. What was it like growing up there? In a simple word, heaven. I mean, I went to school there. I went to Tisbury School. I went to nursery school there. <laughs> I went to kindergarten there. And we lived in a place called Vineyard Haven, in a house, fabulous house overlooking the water, overlooking the sound in the winter. And then in the summer, we moved up island to a place called West Tisbury for the whole summer. And then we moved back. My parents are from New York. My father was a physicist who just who became a writer, and he was a physicist working with Enrico Fermi and I.I. Robbie. He was asked to go to Los Alamos to help make the bomb, and he said that he knew what the bomb was going to be used for and declined that invitation. You sound like you were very close to your father. Yes, he was, he was a very remarkable man, as was my mother. My mother was an amazing woman, too. This place up in Martha's Vineyard is, sounds idyllic, that you were able to, to live in the wintertime closer to the ocean. And then people don't realize that Martha's Vineyard has a whole inner life going on, where there are hills, and it's not all right. about the ocean. And so you went there in the summer, I guess, to get away from some of the tourists. Well, we went there because my parents, for whatever reason, I adored my father, but he wasn't smart enough to buy a house. So they rented houses because the plan was for us to live on the vineyard, and then that, and then they were going to move to France, and we were going to live there. Well, life intervened, and my parents uh, separated, and we moved back to New York. So that was a shock when I moved to New York. 
So I wanted to ask you, did you ride when you were in Martha's Vineyard? I did. I learned to ride when I was four years old. I started learning when I was four at uh, Tashmu Farms that was run by Libby Belden. And I have a horse here uh, that is at, kept at Mary Lewis's farm. And it's, I'm glad you asked me about that because there is the, the original and the best and the most fabulous Catskill character is Mary Lewis, who knows everything about everything, who comes from a small farm in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, or in that area, and has lived up here and has probably taught everybody in Sullivan County how to ride or has trained their horse. Hmm. And Mary can look up in the sky and see a bird and tell you what it is and how old it is and where it's going. And she's rescued crows. People bring animals to her. She rescued one crow during my time that I witnessed that she called voodoo. Voodoo's eyes weren't even open, and Mary sort of slit them open, and voodoo stayed with her. And then he went off with what she called the North Clan, and the North Clan would be circling around her farm, and he would come down to visit her. He would leave the clan. My vision for Mary has always been a show on Jeff called Let's Ask Mary. Because she knows everything. Well, I can ask Mary because I think I'm going to try to get in touch with her I hope and have you do. her on. Thank She'll you for. She'll be a treat. Yeah, thanks for telling me about her. Okay, so you found your way up here and you bought a house, and it sounded like, from what you told me, that this was quite a project. The house was perfect. Any normal person would have walked in, and the house was move. You could move in and start living there. And what was interesting was. The man that owned the house was a, a very important judge from Long Island, and he had grown up there as a boy. So he had a total attachment to that house. His wife, on the other hand, I think loathed the area, loathed the house, and it was sort of amazing because they decided they were going to move up to Wyndham to be with one of their children, and they left everything behind in the house, everything. Wow. It was like lifetimes of stuff. And also they had obviously gone to many, many auctions. And they left all of the things that they had bought at auction. I mean, the house is not that big, but in the in the attic, there were chest of drawers from the 1920s to the 1950s. And in fact, I sort of kept everything the way it was until after 9-11 when I had all this research that I had amassed writing this biography of Barbara Stanwyck. And I insanely thought, all right, I have to redo this attic so that I can bring the research up. I mean, you know, I could have been dead from another attack or whatever, but the research had to be safe. So I practically, I, I did have to take out all the windows of the house to have the furniture removed. Uh, anyway, I, I redid the house. But bit by bit, I mean, I see it as an art project. I've put in stone walls, fabulous stone walls that Mark Engelhart, the genius stone cutter, did. And I've restored ponds. And I've, you know, bit by bit, it's turned into this other sort of Shangri-La. And so that upstairs, that attic part, is that a studio now? Can no, the at, well, the attic part is an office. and But then I also have a studio that I finished off. 
and I I work there a lot. I write there a lot. And my good friend and genius designer, Victoria Lesser, came one day and did me a huge favor and helped me clean out and organize. I mean, I'm very compulsive. I compulsively didn't want to get rid of things until she gauged it perfectly because she waited for me to say, okay, I'm ready. And it took me a year to sort of be willing to just let this stuff go. Why was that? You had, had you become attached to it yourself? I don't really think it was that deep. I think it was just the taking apart and making it something else. But mm -hmm. I was desperate to have it cleaned out. Anyway, she was brilliant. You will not find a better designer. I'm telling you, this woman is totally talented. Victoria Lesser. Yeah. I'm putting in a plug for her. <laughs> so uh, my impression of you is that you're very tenacious you're very strong. You're, you don't give up. Would you say that's a fair assessment? When you're saying it, I would say, yeah, it's not how I think of myself, but I think it's true. I think the house is a perfect example of doing something bit by bit, very slowly. You can't write a major book of any kind if you, unless you are disciplined and you continue to do it, which is exactly what I did. It took me 15 years to write that book. I, you know, I worked at night and on the weekends and on holidays. And, you, you, you know, I used to live a normal life. When you start writing a book like that, you know, you start to live like an ascetic because you don't really go, I would come home, I, and I'm now working on volume two, and I come home and I work and work on the weekends. And, uh, you know, occasionally I have to go out and, live a socialized life, but basically that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a perfect balance because during the day I'm dealing with the present and the future, which is how it works with books. And at night I'm living in the past. And mm. uh, given the world that we're living in right now. Not a bad is, place to be. That is fabulous. But I, I just don't <laughs> want to live there full time. So yeah. this is the perfect balance. Okay, so I think this is a good time for us to take a short break. And then when we come back, I would love for you to talk more about the book and to talk more about Barbara Stanwyck, okay? That would be great. I would love to. All right. Not so long ago, Ireland's public service broadcaster ran a poll, a vote on Ireland's favourite folk song. Here are the results on the Waggle de Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF Radio Catskill on Sunday afternoon at 3. WJFF, Jeffersonville, New York, W233AH, Monticello. Welcome back to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. I've been speaking with editor and author Vicki Wilson, who's had a home here in the Catskills for the past 30 years. In the first half of the show, Vicki spoke about growing up on Martha's Vineyard and finding home here in the Catskills, which, by the way, reminds her of the vineyard. We were beginning to talk about Vicki's 15-year journey writing her 900-page biography of Barbara Stanwyck. Vicki, before we talk about the book, I just have to ask you this. All of these years, you're working at Knopf, and you're dealing with all these different writers of, I'm sure, various talent. 
And I was just wondering, were you ever thinking in all that time, God, I can write better than this. I have to write my own book. One day it just came to me that I, because I work very closely with the people I publish, and sometimes they would call me up and talk to me about the research they're doing, and I would help them sort of get, I somehow could just easily get into their mindset and the way they were thinking about their subject or taking them in a different direction. And I thought, you know, I have a, I have a talent for this. It isn't just that I publish these books. I have a grasp of what it is that it takes to do it. So I said, all right, well, I am going to make out a list, as I would if I were coming up with a book. I'm going to make a list of possible subjects. And there were many people on that list, but one of the people was Barbara Stanwyck. And I thought, nobody's really written a serious book about this woman. She was a fabulous actress. She could do anything, comedy, the most serious drama. She worked with the greatest directors of Hollywood's golden age and beyond. So I thought, all right, I'm going to write a proposal. Now, I had been in publishing for many years, and I thought, all right, well, I'll just write this proposal in two weeks. It took me six months because you, you have to act like you know what your subject is and you have to make it seem as if you know an awful lot. Well, I had, had admired Stanwyck, but I didn't really know that much about her. And, you know, before you can write something that's pared down, that has authority, you have to write a lot and then pare it down so that it does sound authoritative. And I had all the voices that I'm assuming writers and artists of any kind have, which is who's going to care and who, who's going to give a damn. And I just would say to myself, thank you for sharing and keep going. And so at the end of the six months, I had a proposal. While you were doing all of this research and putting this together, what did you find the most fascinating about Barbara Stanwyck? Well, at that point, it was the breadth. I mean, here was this woman. She had made 88 pictures. I mean, she'd come to Hollywood at the end of the silent period. And she'd worked with all the great directors, you know, Frank Capra, William Wellman, Fritz Lang, Billy Wilder, Ruben Mamoulian, Cecil B. DeMille, and on and on. And I've left out some of the George Stevens and Preston Sturgis also. So there was, there was the amount of work. And the other thing that I got, that I was drawn to her by, that came through as I was amassing that information was that she was, there was something impressive about her as a person. First of all, her intelligence came through on the screen. She was a huge reader herself. I mean, she, she, would was. Have, she would have no problems reading this book. No, she loved to read about history. Though she would have said, why in God's name would anyone ever want to write? Not only it's, it's 800 pages, but there is a rather long chronology, and there's a, an index and notes and bibliography. And go on to write volume two. But I had to do that because it wasn't just a standard brand's movie star biography. I wasn't interested in writing that. But I didn't know that at the time. It was only when I started writing that, you know, I mean, people don't know about Barbara Stanwyck. They think, okay, she's a sort of crude girl who grew up from you know, in the streets in Brooklyn. No, what I, what I want to say is she's a daughter of the American Revolution. Right. And it's an old New England family. I wrote a lot about the family's beginning long before she was born. Her, they were in the Civil War. 
uh, they were ship's caulkers. And it was really only because of the Industrial Revolution that that family left New England. So the family was uprooted, as so many American families were, and they moved to the city. And that changed everything because then the mother died. She had an accident. Somebody pushed her off of a trolley. And she went into labor and then septicemia. They didn't have penicillin then, obviously. And that's what she died of. And so there was this family. There were two much older sisters who had their own families. Stanwick had a brother who was two years older than she was. And then the father leaves, could not deal with the mother's death. And so there is Stanwick at four years old and, and Byron at six. And the father runs off to the Panama Canal, which is being built. So imagine what it's like. Then, I mean, imagine being in, you know, in a store and you're four years old or you've lost your mommy. Okay, so this was how, this was what happened to her. And she and her brother became very close. The sisters took them in occasionally, but they were raising their own families. So they were taken in by families in the neighborhood. And when I went to PS52 in uh, Brooklyn, her card wasn't there. Her, as they say, permanent record card wasn't there, but Bai's was. And he had gone from first grade to eighth grade because they stopped at eighth grade then. He'd gone to 13 different schools. That kind of upbringing totally prepared her to exist in Hollywood in right. a way unlike every other, most other actors and actresses there. Because from the time she got to Hollywood, she was, you know, she was under contract. I mean, it's a whole great story. But she was under contract to Columbia. But she was also under contract to two or three other studios at the same time, which very, very few actors or actresses had the wherewithal or the guts. And she was a baby. I mean, she was 21 years old. She'd married the biggest star on Broadway. I mean, this man was huge, who nobody has heard of today. His name was Frank Fay. But all of modern stand-up comedy, from Jimmy Fallon, Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, and Milton Berle, George Burns, Jack Benny, all of it came from Frank Fay, who was a major force. And I write a lot about him in Volume 1. He was a fascinating character, but he was also insane and an alcoholic. And Stanwyck tried to make that marriage work and practically lost her life. I mean, she had to flee with her son. And I had found her son, who she adopted. I mean, look, I could write a whole book on how on, on the research yeah. of the book. You know, unfortunately, we only have so many minutes to do this. And I was wondering, as I'm sitting here listening to you, how did you decide to stop you, just, you stopped at 1940. What made that decision? Well, again, it's, this stuff happens by fluke. So the book was famously late. And the man who was the publisher then, David Rosenthal, saw me at a book event, and he said, come on, Vicki, when are we going to have this book? I, you know, I've read part of it. It's great, et cetera, et cetera. At this point, Simon & Schuster had canceled all their outstanding contracts. This was like the last outstanding, long-overdue contract. And I said to him, as we're just standing there, I said, well, David, you know, I can either continue writing and who knows whenever I'll be finished, or I can do two volumes. Because I had written the book in a way, it's about politics, it's about the history, it's about what's going on in the country. Right. It's not a typical biography in that way. Right. There's a lot of labor history in this book. And also I go into a lot of detail about the movies 
and what she accomplishes for herself in the movies and her acting. There's a lot of Broadway theatrical history because when she was a big star on Broadway, which most people don't know, before she went out to Hollywood, and what was going on in Broadway was really interesting because it was the coming of naturalism, and I go into all of that. And she was considered a very natural actress. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, And I trace... I mean, there's a whole, you know, there's the producer Willard Mack. There was the great producer Arthur Hopkins. All of these people were instrumental. And then, of course, she met up with Frank Capra. And these people were, and, and Frank Fay was famous for being, he was, he was what was called a monologist. And he would stand up there and talk. And it would seem as if it was all just impromptu. In fact, James Cagney said that he learned to act from watching Frank Fay. Anyway, so David Rosenthal, back at this book event, said, well, hmm, let me think about it. And so I went back to my seat. I was sitting with the woman who's my agent, Lynn Nesbitt. And at the end of the event, David walked across to where I was sitting, and he said, okay, do it in two volumes, which was really brave of him. I give that man great credit for that. And I'm very grateful to him for, for doing that. Anyway, so then I had, to, I had to go back and create a book and shape a book mm-hmm. and figure out where it was going to end. And, you know, people said, well, how can you have, how can you have a book about Barbara Stanwyck without writing about The Lady Eve, her, her most perfect movie, or Double Indemnity, or movies like that? And I said, believe me, you're not even going to notice it because... The work that she did before in Stella Dallas, Remember the Night, so many movies um, were so important. And all of her work with Frank Capra, she worked, you know, she worked with these men, William Wellman. She made three, four, five movies with them. I don't know if people know this, but I write an entire chapter on the making of A Star is Born because A Star is Born is based on Barbara Stanwyck and Frank Fay, and there are total parallels about what happened in that life. Stanwyck used to say, I am Mrs. Frank Fay. And William Wellman, who, who wrote that script, was making like three or four movies with Stanwyck watching this marriage disintegrate and watching her fight to stay in it despite everything that was going on. And he, it's based on three couples and Barbara Stanwyck and Frank Fay are the main couple. Hmm. Uh, I don't have time to go into the rest of it. but No, but that's fascinating. And I can't wait till the second volume comes out, Vicki. So volume, I'm working <laughs> on volume two. So thank this you. will be continued. Anyway, thank you. thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Catskill Character. My guest today has been editor and author Vicki Wilson. Vicki's book is A Life of Barbara Stanwyck, True Steel, 1907-1940. Tune in again next Saturday at 11.30 for more fascinating conversations with people of the Catskills, people with Catskill character. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Donna Fellenberg. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater. 
an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Hey, I'm Noelle King. Have you heard of doom scrolling? It's when you consume what feels like an endless barrage of negative news online. Well, Think of Morning Edition is the antidote to that. We bring you measured reporting and thoughtful analysis, and we always make time for moments of joy. So take a break from social media and listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Weekday mornings at 6 on Radio Catskill, your NPR station. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Josh Gondelman told us his one wish now that people are finally being vaccinated. I don't have any living grandparents, so I feel like the CDC should assign me an old person to kiss. (laughs) I just want that excitement. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. If you're stuck with no one to talk to in your house, we are willing to be your friends. Just tune in to this week's News Quiz from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, your community radio station. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Never Sink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com.